0: You are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You are blessed, and that's how you feel every time, huh? (laughs) When you should feel blessed, yeah. So now, uh, in Hebrews eleven verse thirty-three, instead of mentioning specific people that did things by faith, the author now just begins to provide a list of things that were done. Uh, without any names uh, as- ascribed to it. Yeah. It's the men and women of the Old Testament who, he says, through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, yeah. Now, the first three on the list could be attributed to a number of biblical characters, uh, anywhere from, you know, the book of Joshua and Judges, first and second Samuel. But the fourth one can only be attributed to a a few, okay? Uh, Stopping the mouths of lions. Samson uh, is the first who... uh, had his confrontation with a lion. It says that while at the vineyards of Timnah, he was attacked and he, when the spirit of the Lord came upon him, it says he tore the lion apart. Amazing. That's in Joshua, or rather Judges 14. David, of course, is another it could be attributed to, but we've already discussed uh, his story, killing lions in 1 Samuel 17. But the other would be Daniel the prophet who was exiled to Babylon as a young man and his experience with lions actually didn't include any blood or violence. Uh, it's so boring. <laughs> the historical narrative is in Daniel 6. Now, uh, if you've read the book of Daniel, perhaps you've, um, you've seen that the, the, the narratives in the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1 through 6 now you find Daniel and his friends who uh, live by faith in a pagan land and how they uh, came to Babylon and, and what you discover through Daniel's account and things said by some of the other prophets before them and contemporary, that the things done to them in the process were horrific and sad. But also you learn about how they overcame and what they accomplished through faith and how amazing that is. Uh, the book of Daniel Is something. And I remember, of course, learning about Daniel and his friends when I was in Sunday school, but how much more uh, as an adult engaging in a pagan world that they have inspired me and encouraged me greatly, especially knowing the historical context and the things that they uh, went through and endured and stayed strong. And so I believe their time is, or their story rather, is worthy of our time. So the author of Hebrews probably had Daniel in mind when he referred to the, the mouths of the lions being stopped because in Daniel 6, verse 22, it specifically mentions the stopping of the lions' mouths. And uh, so apparently uh, Samson and David had a lot to learn about stopping the mouths of lions. You don't have to kill the poor things. Goodness. Yeah. Also, in verse 34 in Hebrews 11... He mentions the quenching of fire, uh, which can be traced to Daniel 3, uh, where we know Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, thrown into the fiery furnace. Of course, sadly, from Sunday school, we need to typically know their names uh, as according to what the, the Babylonians gave them these pagan names that were blasphemous to them. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, named after the gods. Of uh, the Babylonians. Anyway, the author of Hebrews probably had these uh, Jewish boys in mind when he bunched together uh, this stopping of the mouths of lions and quenching the violence of fire. So I want to visit those stories since the author references them. I had actually thought to finish chapter 11 this week, but the more I thought about these stories from Daniel, I couldn't help myself, uh, especially with how relevant and, and more relevant they become uh, as things change in our culture. So I want to take the stories in their historical order, which means we're going to look at um, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah first. And why the author decided to get historical chronology out of order toward the end of the chapter, I don't know, but um, you can all ask him when you get there. And his identity will be discovered indefinitely when we get to heaven. I guess I'm assuming that. So listen carefully as we talk about the stories. I don't want to read all these chapters to you because I I do want you to come back next Sunday. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of the Babylonian Empire, he uh, conveniently erected a statue of himself or perhaps his kingdom. It's difficult to tell which, but the results were essentially the same. It established what we've called in history an emperor cult, where the the, the emperor then is deified, okay, and the people uh, worship him as a god. In the story, uh, Nebuchadnezzar commanded his subjects to bow down and worship the statue. Now, the subjects are his highest officials in the palace and then in his other cities that he's over, at least the ones that could be there, because his empire was massive and they didn't have uh, email to inform everybody to get to uh, Babylon as soon as they could. Uh, but those that could come came. Uh, we don't know how many people were there, but it turned out to be quite the thing. And, you know, understand that for the pagans, the pagan subjects of Nebuchadnezzar. This was really no strange thing, but it wasn't very appealing to these uncompromising Jews, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who loved the God of Israel. Now, everybody asks, well, where's Daniel in the story? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Daniel was a high official in the king's court. Uh, He was probably on some business for the king. Uh, I don't know. You can ask him when you see him. Uh, But the three Jewish men who were present, and this is really interesting to me, they obeyed the king's command to attend the worship service and gather with all the people. But worship, they, they would not do that. They wouldn't do that. In the story at the appointed time when the masses were commanded to bow down in unison, before the statue, everyone went to their faces to the ground except for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So there they are, standing out like a sore thumb in the midst of a, of a bowing congregation of worshipers. That would have been quite the scene, wouldn't it? Yeah, for some reason in my mind, I always think of, a, of a, the, the Muslims at Mecca bowing, and then in their midst are three men, what that would look like. And so, of course, the incident was reported to the king, and, and when Nebuchadnezzar got the news, he, he flew into a rage and fury. Don't miss that detail, that he took it so personal suggests that the statue indeed represented himself. Okay, taking this as a An insult or a snub. This obstinance and defiance of these three Jews. How how dare they define insult him in front of his subjects? Just a little reminder that the silent actions of a believer can unintentionally but absolutely be offensive, especially in a culture like ours where everyone seeks to be offended. It's all bogus, of course. No one is really offended. It's just a way of being empowered so that you can make people, or they can make people rather look bad or subject you to some social punishment. That's huge right now, isn't it? Just when it gets you in trouble. And it just is so appealing. Sounds like so much fun. You know, when Christians publicly abstain from what the world is so devoted to, Christians are accused of being self-righteous and uh, thinking that they're better than everyone else. If you don't participate in a so-called human rights rally that happens to be contrary to the faith, you'll be made their enemy and you'll be accused of things they oppose. If you don't sign their petitions, the petitions are... endorse their positions. You'll be the bad guy. You'll, you'll be the racist... You'll be the homophobe or whatever phobe they've invented recently because they want to back you into a corner as a bigot. And if they know you're a Christian, they'll go for your throat. They will. Go for your throat. As Peter says if you don't go along with their flood of dissipation, they will at least speak evil of you. At least. At least because you're a bigot and you think you're better than everyone else, uh, just don't be intimidated. Some of us kind of like it. Okay. (laughs) Just respectfully take your stand. And understand, if, if you endorse or defend someone's immoral lifestyle or their false beliefs, you do not love that person. Don't fall into this trap that our culture is pushing right now. If you endorse, okay, you don't love that person. To endorse or defend someone's immorality or heresy is just really helping put a gun to their head. Okay, And we're not in the business of helping people into an eternity separated from God. Amen, we don't do that. Okay, Let them call us what they want. Eternal suicide, especially assisted, is not what we're into. We love people. Uh, which means we don't don't help them in those things. You know, the truth is, Christians are not better than anyone else. We're just a lot better off because of Jesus. All right, we're just a lot better off. Yeah. So keep yourself pure as the world looks on, as you abstain from inordinate passions. Let them bring their charges, because you know the Lord is gonna have the final say. He's gonna, yeah. As Paul reminds us when he said, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Thankfully, Romans 8, 33 through 30, 20, or 33 through, I got my numbers all messed up there. It's Romans 8. <laughs> Let's go back to our story. Uh, these Jewish men were not in the worship meeting, as you noticed, to be disruptive or belligerent. That's not why they were there. They were just silently objecting, refusing to bow before anything or anyone but Jehovah. But of course, their enemies noticed, and they were brought before the king. This is what he said to them Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, it was quite the worship scene. And you fall down and worship the image which I have made, great. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? What a great question. (laughs) Begs an answer from heaven. You know, it reminds me a little of Pharaoh. You remember the story. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Jehovah commands you to let his people go. And Pharaoh said, Who is Jehovah that I should obey his voice? Well, God answered him in ten ways and then gave him a watery grave in the Red Sea. It is actually a good question, but it should be asked with great reverence and regard for one's own life. Amen? So in response to Nebuchadnezzar's threat, the three men said this, and I think that we need to be careful in how we represent the way they said it because I don't see in their lives any kind of disrespect, and I don't believe there's any need for it. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They essentially took the same position as Job, who came before them, who said, though God slay me, I will yet trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. And they most certainly did. Okay, that's Job 13, 15. So these men, they're not willing to forfeit their own souls in order to spare their lives for a minute. See, because the Lord is God no matter what happens to their bodies or their earthly well-being. Nothing changes that. These guys are all talk and they're all action, no matter the cost. This is real faith, okay? And I don't think that their response was disrespectful. I just think it was truthful. They just stood their ground before a sovereign. But it didn't matter. The king, it says, was thrown into another tizzy of rage. So just a reminder that the words of a Christian can be unintentionally but absolutely offensive, okay? Especially in a culture like ours that thrives on being bogusly offended in order to make you look like a narrow-minded bigot, a self-righteous prig. Do we use prig anymore? It's really a great word. It's little. It's meaningful. Yeah, no, no answer will ever satisfy a person like that. So just share the truth, having your words seasoned with grace, and and let them respond as they may. You know, Jesus once said, the world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. I keep telling them that they're evil and they hate me. (laughs) It's funny how some Christians get upset with other Christians when they do what Jesus did. But the fact is, if you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to be hated by some people because the gospel message in its nature testifies that people's deeds are evil and they need to repent. You can't share the biblical gospel without a confrontation with sin. You just can't. I know that there's the modern gospel and there's all of these things that make people feel good about themselves, but um, I don't know. I've read the gospel a few times and Jesus certainly... Wasn't that way? Yeah. When we're like Christ, you know, we don't mean to offend, but the gospel message confronts the rebellion of man. It it threatens their sovereignty. Okay? Their disobedience, it calls them into subjection to the king. And any Christian, rational Christian, with minimal knowledge of the Bible, cannot expect that exchange to always be friendly. I hope that you guys know that. We can't expect every exchange with rebellious humanity to just be peachy. Okay? It's not. As Paul was reminding Timothy of all the troubles he endured for preaching the gospel, he said, "...and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution." Put that one on your mantle with the rest of your promises of the Bible. Right next to all those flowery ones. <laughs> 2 Timothy 3.12. So how about that? Sharing the gospel, Paul equates it with godliness, with being like Christ, and it will eventually, to some degree, result in the world hating you and causing you some degree of trouble, as it did for Hananiah, Michelle and Azariah. Their interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, though, got them thrown into a fiery furnace. Now they didn't just have these laying around. It was it was probably a kiln for firing bricks. A kiln. Yeah. So they were thrown in there, but not before it was heated, seven times hotter than usual. For which I would have said, thank you. If you're gonna subject me to fire, you know, get it over with fast. <laughs> Send me home. But of course, it's just because Nebuchadnezzar's wrath was just inflamed by their defiant faith. And it was actually by having these men thrown into the kiln that Nebuchadnezzar got his answer to his question, which God is able to deliver you from my hands? So after the men were bound and cast into the furnace, the text says that King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound to the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, look, he said, I see four men, loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. What a sight that would have been. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered round. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power, The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own God. That's quite the testimony, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit of change of tune there. It's not over for Nebuchadnezzar yet. We'll talk about that briefly. The fourth man says he looked like the son of God. Apparently, he stood out in some peculiar way. Maybe his brilliance exceeded that of the fire. I'm not, it doesn't say. Um, And then later, Nebuchadnezzar called the personage an angel Possibly, but more likely, it was the angel of the Lord who was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ who had personally attended and ensured that these men were unharmed by the fire. But also, he came to answer the question. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's question. Of course, he didn't answer him directly or verbally. But Nebuchadnezzar got it. He confessed that the God of these men was the most high God. And he said, indeed, there is no God like Jehovah. Maybe that's an arrogant statement because no other God but Jehovah could deliver him out of my hands. (laughs) But it was because of all this that these men were unwilling to bend their knee to another God something which Nebuchadnezzar came to realize and actually later repented of. Following this whole incident, he made a decree throughout his kingdom saying, any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, benevolent leader, and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Now you know that's an accurate testimony about God. But Nebuchadnezzar overlooked the fact that if this God is able to deliver his people the way he did, he certainly doesn't need the help from some king uh, to keep people from slandering him. Amen. Yeah. So, and and and, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn all of this later in Daniel four where his humiliation is complete. And I don't want to leave this out of the story because there's a point to be made. After Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and truly converted to the God of Israel, he said this, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth. In his ways, justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. See, I don't want us to miss this. Because if it wasn't for the faith of Daniel and, and Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah and their unwavering convictions, Nebuchadnezzar would have had no knowledge of the one true God. Yeah. So not only did these men work righteousness... And stop the mouths of lions and quench the violence of fire, they led to faith one of the most powerful and brutal kings in world history. That's awesome. Yeah. Which I think is actually more difficult than quenching the violence of fire or stopping the mouths of lions. Conquering the pride of man? It's amazing. All right, well, speaking of lions, let's look at Daniel's story. It's recorded in Daniel 6. The incident actually takes place years later. Daniel is uh, more advanced in years at this point. The Babylonians have been conquered by the Medes and the Persians who put Darius on the throne in Babylon and Susa, depending on the time of year. Uh, When you're that powerful, you get multiple houses scattered throughout the land. If you ever get a chance to look up Susa, do, it's a magnificent place, by the way. Beautiful. So like Azariah and and Mishael and Hananiah, Daniel knowingly violated the law in devotion to God. I know all of you love to defy rulers. (laughs) Stories just resonate with you. They all broke the law. They did what was illegal but not immoral because they were obligated to a higher moral authority than any king or country. The story of Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah demonstrated that they would not allow their public worship of God to be dictated by government policy. And in Daniel's story, we see that he refused to let his private devotion to God be infringed upon by government policy. Worship, devotion, that's just what we do. Yeah. In Daniel 6, Darius was actually preparing to promote Daniel to one of the highest positions in his cabinet, if you will. Position of great authority. But this made the the other counselors of the king jealous. So they devised a plan that would really appeal to the king's ego and then also would set a trap for Daniel. And so Daniel was known so well by these evil men that if they were to ensnare him, it would have to be a charge that put his devotion to God at odds with the law, the law of the Medes and the Persians. Yeah, it was well-devised. So these wicked men said to Darius, all the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps and counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. And therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Apparently, not all governors and counselors were consulted because Daniel would never have gone for such a harebrained idea. Okay. But here it is. Knowing that the decree was signed and not caring a bit, Daniel went home went to his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees and prayed three times that day, praying, giving thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days, as those evil men knew. I think that's beautiful. They knew Daniel so well, a man that was devout, that he was predictable in his devotion to God. But I love this about Daniel. He, it says he knew that the, the thing was signed, this decree, and he didn't protest. He didn't make a stink. He just quietly, as he had done since his youth, went to his private quarters and did what he always did. And of course, according to plan, these evil men, like the secret police, they violated Daniel's privacy and they caught him in the very act of praying. Jerusalem. And they accused him before Darius, who was bound to his decree. Now the text says, because he liked Daniel, that he was upset with himself that he had been so foolish to sign this decree. But he wasn't able to change it because the Medes and the Persians, they didn't grant the same level of power to their kings as the Babylonians had. Maybe Kenezer could have just thrown it in the fire and it would have been over because he had that much power but not so with Darius he was bound to his decree and so regrettably he gave the command to have Daniel thrown into the lion's den but before they did that the king said to Daniel he says your God whom you serve continually he will deliver you and it says all that night the king fasted And in early the next day, Darius went to the lion's den, and he called out to Daniel. He's in there all night. He says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. When Daniel was brought out of the lion's den, there wasn't a mark on him. Now typically, uh, we know from history that they would sort of starve the lions so that there was no chance of them being glutted and you surviving for a time. But there wasn't a mark on Daniel so apparently Darius wasn't the only one who fasted that night. <laughs> the lions must have salivated all night over Daniel, but were restrained, at least until breakfast, because the enemies of Daniel were fed to them. You can read that on your own time. So anyway, the poor things didn't go hungry after all. <laughs> You know, I think, and I know that the story of Daniel and his friends, it's extremely valuable and more so as time goes on because, you know, they really were believers living in a pagan culture under pagan kings and these men displayed relentless faith with just unwavering conviction. I love it. And I think they show us many things. Okay. And I, I like to Take examples like Daniel and these three men and and some of Paul's and Peter's as as they were beaten, imprisoned, and suffered for the faith and compare them to the way that we see Christians behaving in our culture today uh, in the name of Jesus. Uh, Because I believe strongly that this is the true test, the scriptures, how God's people have behaved in the past in similar contexts. And, uh, and of course, I hear all kinds of things and reasons why people are justified in doing what they do. Uh, some people I'm impressed with, some people I'm uh, rather ashamed of. But these men show us how to behave toward pagan leaders and pagan peoples that have it out for them. They're good examples. They're good examples. They show us how to thrive when others compromise especially if you read Daniel chapter 1. Only four boys of all the captives stayed true to the Lord. Just four of them. They also show us how to keep living for God when it's illegal. If Christianity is made illegal in America, how will that change the face of the church? How will that change the faith of so many in America? It would reveal it, yeah. Yeah. I think they show us that we should be doing a number of things as Christians in our pagan culture, that at various times we should be standing our ground in quiet opposition to the world's flood of dissipation, and that we should always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us, With, as Peter says, with meekness and Fear or reverence, 1 Peter 3.15. And we should be ready to be burned or thrown to the lions as it were when our culture has a visceral reaction to our quiet opposition or our humble defense. You know, there are times to, I believe, to take a quiet stand. Because that communicates a lot, doesn't it? Imagine those, those boys standing up in the midst of all those worshipers, Beneath this powerful king, who was threatening to kill everybody that didn't, do you think that quiet opposition was a message? It was powerful, yeah. But then there will be times when we get punished for it. That's okay. So be prepared, be prepared, that you might stand with Christ's dignity, who did not hurl insults in return. Oftentimes, I think we have our insults prepared rather than a reverent, humble response for the hope that's in us. Because I can throw some elbows. You know that's right. But it's not Christ-like. People will mean to destroy your reputation, ruin your career because you're a Christian, but thank God they're not trying to do that because of something else. Right? Right? Yeah. Just don't contribute to your own ruin by being ungodly. Or as Peter says, by being a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Okay. Live like Jesus at all times, whether you're being persecuted or not. Look at his example. Yeah. Give good answers in your defense and keep your nose clean, for goodness sake. You know, if you suffer for those things, Peter says it'll be for the glory of God. And can you think of a higher calling than contributing to the glory of God? I don't think you can. Yeah. That's all I got for you today. Some things to think about. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Another good thing to study is read Paul's letters before he was in prison, and then read Paul's letters when he was in prison and see if you see any real difference. Paul was faithful to the same message, the same disposition, the same philosophy, and uh, it's, it's very encouraging. Faith and practice, all from the scriptures, Let's stay true to it. Let's pray. Well, as Paul said, that evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. And here we are. They're contrary, they're ungodly, the flood of dissipation, as our culture just throws off every moral restraint to do as they did in the book of Judges, where every man does what's right in his own eyes. And as Isaiah said, they're calling evil good and good evil. Lord, we need some courage That we need your grace to instill in us, Lord, convictions that are unmovable. Not just so that we wouldn't be moved but so that we might be a benefit to those around us both in the faith and outside, Lord. What's the world to do without an example of people loving you and serving you So, Lord, it's true. We need more vertebrate Christians, men and women that stand strong. And We have so many examples before us as we'll look at in chapter 12, but we just need to fall in the footsteps of those that have gone before us. Teach us to do that. Help us to be diligent students of your word so that we might know what they say about how we should act and respond in those particular contexts so that we might be blameless before you, Lord. And Lord, give us grace to let you have the final say so that we're not reviling people when they revile us, but we can maintain our Christian integrity. Lord, thank you for your word and I thank you for my church family. I do ask, Lord, that you'd give them opportunity this week to stand firm for you, perhaps quietly. Help them to be prepared to give an answer. And Lord, help them to be prepared for the consequences. And maybe even help them to rejoice in it as Peter did, as Peter did when he was beaten for his faith. So Lord, we love you, and we just thank you so much. Amen. Yeah. Okay.